Hello, this is Catherine Nichols, here with Elisa Gabbert, and this is Lit Century, a podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1985, which is the year Louise Glick's poem, The Mock Orange, came out in the collection Triumph of Achilles. The truth is, we want to talk about more of her work than that. We're also talking about her collection, The Wild Iris, from 1993, and a letter she wrote to her friend Brenda Hillman in 1986 and an Education of the Poet lecture she gave in 1989 at the Guggenheim Museum. Uh, And then we're also talking about several of her other poems and a piece that Elisa just wrote for the New York Times that has the headline, Louise Glick's stark new book affirms her icy precision. It's more of a career retrospective. We're going to be talking about all of this. Um, And we have a guest, uh, Kay Austin Collins, who was here before for our General of the Dead Army episode last spring. He's a film critic at Rolling Stone, and also used to do Slate's much-missed flashback movie podcast, which I still love. I'm not really going to do a conventional summary of the material this time, because um, it's just a lot of very short things. In broad strokes, though, she uses words and images from nature and mythology in her poetry frequently, and she writes about death a lot. Um, And in the letter, uh, she sort of describes making uh, the steps of a Julia Child pork recipe in detail. And then she tells a story about her son, and then an embarrassing story about the early days of dating her husband. And then in the speech, she talks about herself as a child and an adolescent and young woman, including her nearly fatal anorexia. Um, And she talks about how she thought about poetry through all these phases of her life. All right, here's our conversation. Hi, Kim and Elisa. I'm kind of an amazing coincidence led to this episode where I asked for ideas for what we should do. And um, Cam, you suggested that we should do a Louise Gluck uh, episode. And I knew that Elisa, who's after all my frequent co-host, was also doing this New York Times piece on like a retrospective of her career. It came together as, um, as a wonderful coincidence that you were both thinking of her at the same time. Um, what is your longer-term relationship with her work? Um, well, for me, it's I was in high school. Um, I'm from New Jersey, and in creative writing class, we uh, the Dodge Poetry Festival um, was still happening at Waterloo Village, um, and going to that as a teenager just really got me into poetry and so I just remember being in a Barnes and Noble one day and like there it was like you know I was seeing people like I knew who Rita Dove was beforehand but there were I was seeing C.K. Williams and um you know I think Jory Graham all these all these amazing poets um many of them before I actually knew who they were um and I don't even remember if Louise was there but I just remember walking through it was like the poetry out of Barnes and Noble um in like 10th or 11th grade and the cover of the wild iris sort of stopped me. And then I opened to the first poem, the title poem, and was shook. <laughs> I, don't know, you know, I don't know how else to say it. Um, first of all, I think I was into, I was, I was a teenager, so... <laughs> Depressive poets were my jam. Franz writes, "Walking to Martha's Vineyard" had just come out. Um, a lot among a lot of queer teens in my life. Um, Marie's Marie Howe's "What the Living Do" was really big. 
Um, and, and so I immediately vibed on that front, but I also just, I think this is something we're inevitably going to talk about. I felt addressed by a poem in a way that I had never felt addressed by a poem before. Um, and I walked away just, I, I didn't, I think, didn't think I was going to buy the book at that moment. So I put it back and I walked away and, and there were just images that were already in my head, like line, like, you know, that what you call death. I remember it's just like, it had been a while since a poem had so impressed itself upon me. So I turned back around and bought it, <laughs> um, knowing nothing about her. Uh, I saw the Pulitzer sticker, you know, back that history is hit or miss. So that didn't necessarily mean anything to me. Um, but ever, ever since, and then, you know, you know, pandemic hit and her collected was one of the first of too many uh, retail therapy book purchases I made during the pandemic. And then she won the Nobel prize. And I felt uh, like a part of that. I felt like they were listening to me yeah, because um, that's what I was voting for. And she's just been with me the entire pandemic. I just, I keep the collected next to my bed and just wow. yeah. turn to poems at, at, you know, at random at this point. Um, so Elisa, in your piece, you were saying that you had a more recent, like that there were two different ways that you had related to her work, that when you were younger, you found her to be, well, I'll let you say it. Yeah, yeah. I, I came to like a little bit late. Um, when I was like in grad school in my early 20s, something like The Wild Iris was pretty much kryptonite to me just looking at the cover <laughs> that would be like mom book to me you know <laughs> like <laughs> that doesn't suit my like punk indie aesthetic <laughs> like what's this book about flowers you know like I and I just wouldn't have even wanted to touch that and I do remember reading the poem Mock Orange which I know we're going to talk about in grad school and just being like what like what is this bitch on like <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, this is so humorless. You know, it just, it was not for me at the time. And now like, God, what a fool. Um, I mean, now I, I truly think of her as one of my favorite poets and like you, Cameron, I've, I've read so much Glick. I also have the big collected during the pandemic. That was really like when I got super into her, um, like again, and for the first time, I guess I, you know, over the years, I've like, I've, I've, I've certainly softened to her, and now I just, I really love her, like that kind of Rilkean, just spiritual wrestling that she's always doing. It's just, it's so intense. Um, yeah, now I'm like, this is what poetry's for. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> Can I just say, like, what you're describing though is is so like the kind of back and forth is so even as someone who loves her work, um, it actually is descriptive of my experience as well in a way, because, and it really took for like the Nobel actually to remind me to get back into her work because I think I drifted away a little bit because her, her seeming simplicity, like her simple language, um, at some point I just became suspicious of my affection for her poetry because I thought, you know, this is somehow too easy. 
um, I, you know, I would just like skim over poems and I'd be like, there's nothing going on beneath the beauty of this language for me. And then I would come back to the same poems like, like Mock Orange, that's a great example and think, uh, actually, this is a deeply strange, a deeply strange work and, and go to the Wild Iris and, and, and think, you know, there was a point where I turned against it and was like, all these fires, if they, okay, we get it. Like, you know more than us. You are you are reincarnations of the soul. You have seen the void and, and you've been back and you're telling the tale and we can't hear you. I get it. Fine. Whatever. <laughs> and then and then there came the swing back to um the depths of of that address of of her way of getting at what as conscious spirits, we don't understand by, in some of the poems, taking the form of a spirit that understands, but still so comprehending the limits of our comprehension. It is, it is just this, it's just this magical um, book for me. But, but like, I could see someone not having heard of her hearing about like something like the Nobel picking up a book and being like, I don't get it. This is like really pretty, but, and like sad, she's clearly depressed, but like, I don't get what's sophisticated about this. Um, I think the simplicity of her language is was something that she cares about um, and is written about, but it's that it's, it's, it's her ability. It's like Larkin, right? Someone who, who writes in a way that is accessible, but there's so much going on if you attend to what's happening that it could be easy to miss. Um, I'm the person. And that's what I love. Who just picked her up and was like, oh, a bunch of poems about flowers. Nice. You know, oh, and it, <laughs> I uh, like I, I was really blown away by the wild iris. But um, but you actually suggested that we read one of her letters and also her speech which is made into an essay the education of the poet um and just having those prose sources it kind of made me feel like the poetry was written by a person which gave me a way in it both helped me with that feeling of like is this a pretty poem about a flower that's also about death or do i need to stay with it longer to really know what journey I'm going on, like where it's taking me, you know? Um, and her, uh, the, the prose things helped me the prose, which like the letter is barely prose. The letter that, um, <laughs> that she wrote to her friend is a recipe and a story about her son and a story about, um, being too intense in the early days of dating her husband and then feeling self-conscious about her intensity. And, um, I'm sure we'll tell that story in a second, but, um, that, plus her discussion of her desire to write something that would exist after her death, that that was like always her motive as a writer. I have to tell you, it really, really upset me. I was just, I mean, I was talking to Elisa about it the whole week, personally devastating to, to read this in a time of climate change, because obviously the way that she is connecting to nature has to do with the idea that these cycles will exist beyond her life. And that comparing her human experiences and her emotions to 
the seasons and to the cycles of death and rebirth in the garden, the flowers, those things. Um, I don't know. I was like, maybe not. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, that cyclicality, cyclicality that she's so obsessed with, um, you know, there's so much seasonality in her poems and like the passing of time. Like even then it feels like she's talking about like an illusion of eternity. You know what I mean? Because like, there's just so much awareness of the end of existence in her poetry. So much. And that feeling that it obviously, um, I'm not a person who wears contacts. So for me, this is an analogy that, that works maybe for contact wearers. It doesn't, but um, I'm like, you can tell that she's sort of touching her own eyeball. She's like, think about something that is horrifying to her on a really visceral level of like, you will die. But also there isn't something that makes that okay. There isn't some cyclicalness. So one of the things I was thinking about this is the analogy, um, like the poetic image of melting ice has a really different meaning now. Um, Mm -hmm. It used to be like, you know, if there's a poem about melting ice, usually there would be something about, you know, forgiveness or people's feelings um, becoming kinder or gentler or something like that, like love. I don't know. Uh, But now I think if you have an image about melting ice in a poem, it's at least going to exist in the same world as polar ice melting and, you know, that kind of thing. And so I actually just searched, like, when does she use these images? Because I was thinking about it. I was like, can you use nature images the way that you used to as a poet? I don't know. You know, like, they have to have different meaning. And the melting ice, um, that felt like one that I could really understand exactly how the meaning was changing as our time is changing. Um, and the ones that I found are from 2004 and 2005. But she only just started writing about melting ice at a time when I don't think like this headlines were all about melting ice, but everyone knew this was going to be a really big deal. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Al Gore was definitely on his shit by then. Oh yeah. yeah, exactly. Like anyone who was paying attention already knew that melting ice was going to be. She she saw an inconvenient truth for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think that, I think it's interesting that you um, had that impulse to examine when she would start using that kind of image. Actually, I I um I really love that impulse. It really it really. Because I think the question that you're raising is so interesting in terms of, I mean, her work and her use of nature, but also mythology, um, you know, the things that she uses to such a degree that I, I wouldn't school her with the confessional poets per se, for example, even though they share many of the same impulses and and even though in her work it is as easy as it is in their work to uh, make the mistake or also correctly directly map the uh, author of the poem onto the eye of the poem yeah um, which is the thing that you know in creative writing class they always say 
don't do that. Not necessarily. Um, well, we're no. getting Sylvia Plath this week, so forget about that rule just this week. You know, like um, <laughs> Elisa totally on <laughs> our previous uh, uh, episode of this very podcast. Oh uh, yeah, totally. I like I went off about Daddy. <laughs> Um, Sorry. Yeah. Okay, we were going to go back to how the uh, speaker of the poet is if poem isn't the same as the poet. Well, yeah. you know, I mean, with Louise, that that is such a. And just to finish this thought, like uh, also, you, you're, what you're saying about the prose pieces being clarifying in in one sense that they remind you that a person wrote these things. That is one of the things that I love about these prose pieces, but also about her. I never. I, and and the the education of the poet um, is one of the prose pieces that we had in mind, and and it's interesting to see her say this directly. But her craving is for poetry that requests or demands uh, a listener, another person, and that is something I've always sensed about. I had never quite articulated it that way, but that is also a thing that necessarily. Um, you know, through that mode, you necessarily, as a reader, infer um, an embodied author, uh, not a, not a detached, uh, you know, a magician of language or someone playing with language or playing with sound, not that, but also an actual person. And then you read, you know, the letter to Brenda Hillman, and she's giving this pork recipe, but she starts it also, right, you mentioned that kind of humiliating um, stories that she tells, but it also starts with, I have all these things to write and I just don't feel like it. Um, all these things that just reiterate that she is a person, even her Nobel prize interview. I don't know if you've heard this, but like the Nobel is hip now and they, uh, you know, they post interviews with the new winners on Twitter and the phone call with her was so iconic to me because it wasn't so much that she didn't seem to be in the mood. It really, and I think she says this explicitly, she hadn't had her coffee yet. She's very happy to have the prize. But I started listening to it and it'd be she has needs. I stopped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's such a just get out of bed. I'm so honored, obviously. God, it's the Nobel Prize people on the phone and I got to have this conversation because it's like such a big deal. But man, I haven't had my coffee yet. You're asking me these questions about like my career, what it feels like to win the Nobel Prize. And I, it let's wait till noon, maybe, <laughs> you know, like, um, but she just reminds you, even in that space where one is, you know, expected to be deferent and, um, you know, professional, you know, to the Nobel Prize, it's the biggest deal in the world. She will say out loud, look, I, I'm, my brain's not totally here yet. Um, and that just jives with what her poetry does for me. It just reminds me constantly of that person at the desk. Um, and Dickinson does that for me as well. Interesting. I maybe this is just from the the prose stories that the stories she tells about herself are about being so at war with herself and um kind of terrified of herself does that seem right to you like i'll, I'll just tell the story quickly the the embarrassing story about her uh, courtship with her husband where i guess like she and they spend 
three days together. And the first day they're both like, oh, this is way too much time together for a new relationship. Um, this was a mistake. But then the three days are increasingly good. They're both really happy. And they say this passionate goodbye. But then she's snowed in at the airport and he's going to go meet other friends. So she can't actually fly out of the airport. So she calls him and says, how about I come and spend another day with you after all? And he hesitates before saying, yes, you can come and meet my friends and have dinner with me. Um, and so she slams down the phone before she has to hear him hesitate again and then drives. And then <laughs> they eat pizza and she cries all night about how she's just ruined the relationship. And, um, and then ultimately decides that this was the right thing to do after all. And that this was kind of the beginning of the, their relationship becoming what eventually would be a marriage. It's hard to know from that story if she's talking about her fear of her own desire or her fear of her own urges as kind of part of the sort of rom-com narrative of the era, which is like, you know, that women who try to pursue men are probably like too much in some way and they're embarrassing themselves. And, and then the, if they are rewarded for it, it's like, they're kind of, it's cause it's cute when they're crazy, you know, but it's like, I don't know if she's kind of playing that trope to herself or in the context of the rest of what we know about her as a person, it seems like she really is terrified of herself. Does that seem right to you? And like, I get control freak vibes. And I say that as an absolute control freak. Like I like to put up the groceries and load the dishwasher, you know, like I bet she does too. (laughs) (laughs) I just um, writes that recipe is it's the recipe of a control freak. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, that fear of like, you know, in an early relationship, you're sort of controlling your image and just like doling it out and making sure they understand you the way um, you want them to understand you. And like, so it's like, I worry when passion takes over, you know, (laughs) like, I'm not going to be ice queen Louise Glick anymore. Um, And I, yeah, I think that comes through in her poetry. I I feel like I, I have also been thinking about how she relates to Plath and how she relates to Marie Howe. You mentioned Marie Howe earlier too, Cameron. Um, like Plath, it's like, she's cold, but it's like a burning cold, you know? It's like, yeah. it's like a hot yeah. ice. <laughs> and I, I've, I've been fascinated by that effect with both of them for years. Like, I'm not quite sure how that comes through. It's just like such a steely, blue gaze kind of thing that's coming out of the poems yeah you know oh sorry sorry go (laughs) there's so much to say it's just it's immediately reminding me of um uh one of the poems in the wild iris that is this i think it's one of the uh matin poems if i'm i'm assuming it's matin the french right um uh one of the earlier ones in the volume about the depressive relating to the tree and this uh, Noah person who says, that's the mistake that depressives make, you know, relating to the tree. The way that that unfolds as, is, you know, is the poem an argument against what he's saying or is it uh, 
a sort of frustrated admission and declaration of making the mistake or is it, you know, it, it, I guess what I'm saying is the steeliness comes from, for me, the lack of explicit anger or disagreement with this perspective of her consciousness that this Noah is offering. Um, oh, interesting. But also the feelings in themselves are hot to me. Um, the feeling of the depressive, uh, you know, curled and gnarled into this hardened, but according to this book, sensate and knowing thing, um, the ability to project onto that um, and to see oneself into that in the midst of a poem where someone's telling you that you're wrong. The poem doesn't end with, you know, fuck Noah <laughs> and, and fuck his feelings about my liking this tree. It's, 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 it, for me, it, I just, I'm left on this kind of cliffhanging note of, so Louise, what do you think actually? Um, like, do you feel admonished by, by what this man is saying about your inner life? Um, because I sense anger in the way that she says, in the way that she re recapitulates what he says to her, you know, that's the thing about depressives or whatever, but, you know, because there's such condescension in that, but I don't see her necessarily taking, I, I see her hearing this and being unsure of what to do with herself because of this. And that lack of a resolution just is like a, a clash that um, I think, at least in what you're describing with the burning cold, that for me is a poem that encapsulates it for me. The feelings mm -hmm. are so hot, but the, and, and so clear, there's such a clarity to this language and a beauty to it. Um, but the debate happening within it there's definitely a debate. There's a debate yeah. happening within a lot of these. And it oh yeah. And it feels like it's often a debate between lovers or spouses or like um, people who are having an experience together who have different perspectives on what the meaning is. And I'm trying to find yeah. Well, Isn't one. her next book the divorce book? Meadowlands? I th I think so. Uh-huh. Just making sure. Um, yeah, it is. It is Meadowlands. Mm -hmm. And she has a couple of divorce books, right? Because I think she got divorced twice. Oh, that's right. It, it, which is he? Is Achilles? I think the Triumph of Achilles was the first divorce. Yeah. Um, yeah, quite an opening poem for a divorce book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So I was going to say, just picking up on the idea of sort of debate. Um, yeah, I read all the Matanza and Vespers poems as prayers, like addressed to God. And it seems like she's wrestling with this kind of, um, with this doubt that is so pervasive that it's like she's saying, I don't believe in you. And yet, and yet, you know, there's this real like resentful kind of belief which is like, if, if your viewpoint is that doubt is faith, then you don't really have a choice. Like, even if you don't believe in God, you have to believe in God, which seems like kind of a scam, but <laughs> a 
again, that's one of those things I feel like I understand more as I get older. And that's also like a very Dickinsonian idea. Um, but what I love um, about the way this book is constructed is how she's always alternating between um, like the subject position, the, the eye of the poem being like, I'm me, I'm, you know, the poet speaker in this garden addressing God, nature, um, all of that stuff. <laughs> and then switching to the voice of the flowers and the plants in the garden, like to, to whom the gardeners, you know, quote unquote, Louise, like she is God to them. And like, I think that's so fascinating the way she skips levels that way, where she's like playing God and then playing um, like the supplicant. Yeah. And that, that form of godhood that she has, she can, in some ways she has power over them and other ways she can't make them be other than what they are. Um, and I think that that's some of the, the tension in her religious attitude of like, um, even believing in God doesn't mean that um, she can be other than what she is. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. And also the uh, mock orange, I just want to pull it up. So I have the exact words. Um, The first stanza, it is not the moon. I tell you, it is these flowers lighting the yard. Um, That sense that, and I think we can easily imagine something where it feels like the moonlight is coming from the flowers, you know, because they're bright and lit by it. Uh, and that that's sort of an experience of attraction. Like it feels like the attractive person is creating the attraction rather than yourself, you know, that you project it onto them and make it belong to them instead of belong to yourself. But I think that that's, it's a move that she makes in basically all her poetry is like, here's my feelings that the tree is having about. (laughs) Right. Yeah, she does such interesting things with personas. I mean, of course, there's she does a lot of um, mythology appropriating. <laughs> um, but like in her later work and her new book, Winter Recipes from the Collective, and also her last book, Faithful and Virtuous Night, um, it's less mythological, but she's just doing these like kind of persona poems in the voice of like, a character that feels very fictive. And I find that really interesting. Like, yeah, it's, it's just a definite move away from kind of starting with like a familiar character. Like I often find in those poems, you have to read into them for a little while before, you know, like, Oh, this is a definite kind of speaker that she's just invented. Like she'll do something to make you realize like, Oh, this speaker is actually a man. (laughs) Ha ha fooled you. (laughs) Like you assumed it was a variation on me. Yeah. And you know, what's, what's so it's, it's funny that we're saying this because she clearly is a poet who um, is interested in personas and is interested in, in kind of uh, a melange of identities across one volume. But if you were to ask me, you know, who are your favorite persona poets? I think, oh, well, you know, like Frank Bedard and Alan West. And, and I would, I would, I would not immediately for some reason, think of Louise because I 
no matter the persona, I think that I'm dealing with. <laughs> yeah, dealing it always sounds like her. It yeah. all, like, the, all the flowers sound like Louise, right. for sure. You're an iris, you're Persephone, <laughs> you're, you're all these things, but you're always Louise to me. And mm-hmm. I, I, maybe that's an error, but also, I, you know, now looking back at, at Mock Orange, um, it's funny the the because I think that letter to Brenda Hillman is is like eighty six or so, but Triumph of Achilles, in which Mark Orange uh, appears, has that that couplet, the low humiliating premise of union, which is that embarrassing experience. You know that could be a descriptor for the embarrassing experience that she recounts in the letter, uh, and everything, Catherine, that you were saying before about the. Um, knowing what you know of Louise, what you might want to feel is her, what you might assume given what you know of her is, would be a, a kind of disgust at the falling into the trope of, of romance and, and clinginess and embarrassing feelings in the way that happens to everyone. But when it has been, uh, you know, when it has manifest so often in, in romantic comedy or, or cheesy, kind of cheesy things, um, you can't help sometimes but feel a little gross about yourself to, to have become the archetype in that way. Totally. And, and, and that's what I sense in the letter. And that, I, she can distill that into the low, humiliating premise of union. Um, even though in the poem, I feel like, it's, it's most immediately, I think, describing, um, you know, the man orgasming um, or, or, or just the, you know, the climax. And, and that's the low humiliating premise. But it's also well, not entirely because she also says that um, that the man's mouth sealing my mouth, the man's paralyzing body. That also feels like it's partly her own desire that is paralyzing her. And yeah sealing her mouth it's it's not only it's not something that he's doing in this poem i would say yeah it is union yeah um, exactly there's uh, such an interesting echo of that in the wild iris um i marked the i actually have it open because i just i wanted to make sure i didn't miss this it's the silver lily at the end of that poem um The lines are, these nights, I am no longer even certain. I know what the end means. And you, who've been with a man after the first cries, doesn't joy like fear make no sound. Wow. I know. (laughs) (laughs) In sum, I agree with the Nobel Committee. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we've yet done an episode on a Nobel winner that we haven't eventually agreed. That they they're pretty good <laughs> pretty, pretty good I, I defend that choice um. Um, so I also want to talk about the part in um, education of the poet where she talks about her anorexia because I thought that, yes. that felt like such a superhero origin story where <laughs> um, she or just like it, just such a honed encapsulation of everything that you can read inside her poetry where she wanted (laughs) the way she analyzes it for herself is she just has this um, hatred of herself and desire to separate from her mother and um, perfectionism that is so brittle that she can't really do anything 
and it turns in, it comes out as anorexia. And she's like, objectively, I know that, you know, and she says these kind of terrifying, definitely under a hundred pounds weights that she has reached. And she's like, oh, I'm going to die. And I haven't yet written anything that is worth preserving, you know, for after my death. And that's like her, her big motive. Um, so she's like, I guess I have to survive. And so she goes to her parents and asks them to put her in psychoanalysis, um, which was, I guess, what you did at the time in the 70s. It's the 70s, right? 60s? Like that was the best that they had for eating disorders. And it wasn't necessarily a very well-known thing. And she did seven. Well, she was born in the 30s. So if okay, she was so, a teenager, yeah, so it could have been late 50s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Uh, am I doing that um, math right? No, well, definitely don't say definitely don't say that it was the seventies because I I think it was yeah. more of a known thing by then. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so seven years of psychoanalysis that she basically treated like her education, like that she said it taught her how to think, mm-hmm. and that's so much psychoanalysis. When for a young person, for a young person, it's so much. For... I love that the PDF we read was from an Adam Phillips course. <laughs> I was a psychoanalyst. <laughs> I was like, I'm that so was glad cool. you mentioned that. Uh, that cracked <laughs> me up. That cracked me up. <laughs> that must be why you thought that was so interesting, right? <laughs> I, 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 I cracked up seeing that because I was like, oh, this is interesting. Adam Phillips um, teaching this particular essay and rereading the essay. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, even before she gets to, it's, it's funny because by the, the way that the essay is, is structured, by the time we get to the disclosure about um, anorexia, it first of all does not appear to be what this, uh, what this essay is going to be about. Um, and what comes before that is, is this really, um, this, you know, these descriptions of the writer's uh, you know, contrary to the image of the writer as someone uh, quantifiable by what's completed, what is successful, um, successful because completed, um, you know, the the idea of writing as one in which one finishes their work and can kind of close the chapter on that work. She thinks instead of writing, gotta agree, as one of, I think her words are helplessness. And um, despair uh, and the um, the unachieved and the unwritten um, as the markers of of writing and you know she gets into her her love of direct address and um, the sense with which sentences are her unit and all these just clarifying things and it's through this description of control over language, you know, recounting one of her, two of her childhood poems and all these things. Then we arrive at the, the, um, what she describes basically as an illusion of control over the body. Um, and we're talking still about, you know, someone who's kind of recounting their life, not necessarily chronologically, but, you know, we've gone from the childhood ephemera poems, one of which she recounts by memory, and none of us can back check it, but I believe her when she says that she remembers all of her poems verbatim. She's someone who can say that, and I'll believe them. <laughs> and now we're in the teenage years where, you know, after a portrait of mother and father and 
falling in love with language and, and falling in love with verse and falling in love with uh, with play of with verse and with language, we arrive at, you know, it seems to me that the tragedy of anorexia and and it throws me. Um, and then she writes about that condition in such a way that I, yeah, I, I realize that this is, okay, this is the education of the poet. This is where she's kind of going with this, but she's... Yeah, and what she talks about is, she talks about it like she she wants to cleanse herself of romanticism. That she yeah. doesn't want to have any romantic urges in her writing or in herself. And that the it's like her ambition comes from smallness instead of bigness yeah and mm-hmm. it comes from rejection instead of embracing and like if you told me like do you want to read a bunch of poems by somebody who kind of <laughs> hates what they love <laughs> you know <laughs> that they basically distrust any of their urges um I would think that that doesn't feel like a generative position and it's just amazing how wrong I am, you know? Hmm. And how she proves us wrong with, again, straightforward language, you know, that, and, and the, the, the sentence as a unit, she's not E.E. Cummings. She's not, you know, she, she is not obscuring. um, I don't, think of her as obscuring meaning I think of her as arriving at um what is so essential about meaning in the context of embodied experience but also vast unknowns through mm-hmm. just how do you do that through simple and by simple I, I mean just you know she doesn't want showy overly incandescent words doesn't she, she call out the word incarnadine as the one she's like, yes, <laughs> no, no. you know, right. Like the idea of a poet is someone who falls in love with words like incarnadine, which I don't know whose idea that is, but I, I like, I'm glad. Idea, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But how does she do that? I just, you know, that's the thing that made me become suspicious of my affection for her work for a little while, because I just, it was like, this is, this doesn't feel hard enough. But it is so hard if you really. Yeah, because I think that part of part of what is there is all the things that are not there. Like it's never cute. It's never. Well, even if it's cute, it's never cutesy, you know? Yeah. And I'm, I guess I'm kind of thinking of E coming still. It's like there's so many modernist urges that she does not play around with. Like she's not experimenting with what's out there she's not like picking up little bits of this and that and sewing it all together in any way there are so many ways of being a poet that she whether she has any interest in trying them she's not doing it in her published work and I think that the Emily Dickinson actually feels like a I don't know Emily Dickinson feels also like like she's only ever writing the way she would write Mm-hmm. mm-hmm I love, there's one line in that essay um, where she's talking about writer's block. And she says, when the aim of the work is spiritual insight, it seems absurd to expect fluency, which 
like that emptiness you're talking about what's not in the work is like, that's all the sort of thinking and um, just staring into the void that she's doing before she has some kind of insight that's meaningful enough that she can just say what she means and she doesn't have to pretty it up with, with language. Um, William Meredith once said something really, really similar, which was that um, he doesn't write poems very often. You know, you might only write a great poem like every 10 years because you have to wait for astonishing experience. And he says, astonishing experience would be the experience that is not astonishment of reality, but astonishment of insight. Um, So yeah, in both cases that focus on the insight, which really feels to me like what her poems are about. And I love that it's just, you know, stripped to, (laughs) these are the words that mean what, like, I want you to know that I know now. Um, Well, and you said that in your, your uh, New York Times piece that her latest collection feels short, maybe because she's kind of said what she wanted to say. And maybe that's what she has left is like just a few poems. So she's not fill it out Um, with a bunch of others just so it's like the right length. Yeah, I had never read this essay before this week. And I, of course, read it after I turned in my column. Um, And she does say somewhere in there, like, yeah, I I realized at a young age, I would rather be silent than, you know, say nothing or say something meaningless, which was pretty much the conclusion I came to just from reading all of her work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So like that's that's there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and I. I mean, all of this is making me wonder because because of the nature of her project, I just I'm I'm so fascinated by the question of when it is that she knows a poem is finished or finished in quotation marks, because she is arriving at um, or rather she's not arriving at things that feel overly neat, but the poems also always for me feel whole um and that balance you know there's i just uh, the wild diaries is a particularly good example of a book where just page by page um yes the book is is cumulative for me i I walk away from it um very full if if i read it in, in one sitting and really sit with it but even just poem by poem it was you know after she because she won the award, just being on Instagram and, and all of my friends posting, you know, their favorite Louise Cook poems. And it's it's just every poem that I saw was whole, but also beyond me, but also very much manifest and complete. I just wonder how she and her process arrives at what she feels to be a complete poem. Um, because... I, you know, that void that she's staring into, you could, you just get lost in it. it it's outer space. You could be Sandra Bullock in gravity, <laughs> floating around <laughs> in the void. Um, you know, how do you, how do you peer into that and into oneself and into the muck and arrive at poems that so aptly describe the condition of that looking and the condition of that void in itself and also the poems themselves feel like they've chipped away actually at some minor part of that question in a real way i just that tension for me is is just i don't know how she does that 
Yeah, and the simplicity makes it harder to see how she's doing it, not easier. I I was thinking about one of the poems and I can't find it in the Wild Iris and I've looked, maybe you know what it was. I think it was a midsummer one where um, she and the husband character are working in the garden and they're like proud of how good their relationship is and how good their garden is. And, um, and he's like, you know, it just keeps getting better, but it's like midsummer. So obviously it's the, it's the uh, fulcrum of everything getting worse. Um, And she's just like watching him being kind of proud of what he's achieved. I definitely think that, that there is something in that cyclicalness and that and the pitilessness of the natural world that kind of does some of the void work for her like yeah however much you might have a hunger for meaning it's just you're just not made into a meaning world we're made into a natural world where meaning is just going to be a set of metaphors that don't quite attach right to what is real what's real void work i like that phrase void work yeah i like that phrase too and i think there's i think i wrote it down somewhere yeah uh in the poem uh clear clear morning there's uh you know the eye of the poem um, says that they're speaking through vehicles only in details of earth as you prefer, right? Speaking through um, material, through symbol, through um, tactility, through cycles, through you know images, things that we make meaning from. Um, but the voice is saying, I'm, I'm speaking on these terms because these are the terms on which you can understand what I'm trying to say. It is an approximation of what I'm actually trying to say. Um, like that song, a tribute to the greatest song. The this is not the greatest song. It's just a tribute. The, <laughs> sorry, I'll have to cut that. <laughs> Here's one thing. Sorry. Yeah, ready. Okay, in the letter. So it's not a poem. It's a letter, and she's she writes to her friend. Um, the tulips, red, yellow, and white, are dead. Like the idea that she would specify the colors of the tulips in a letter to her friend before saying that they're dead. It just seems, um, I don't know, it just seems incredibly characteristic of one very, very particular mind. Absolutely. I mean, even uh, people really have to look this letter up because even the way that she approaches describing, um, you know, a recipe for a pork dish is, first of all, you would have to, if you were actually cooking from this recipe, translate it into a recipe with, <laughs> with steps that you could uh, properly follow, but it's her attention to the thingness of every aspect of the recipe of the materials with which one is working in this case, the food. Um, it's just every, everything has a, a sensitivity to it. Uh, uh, she's giving instruction really on how to handle these sensitive materials in order to arrive at the dish, which is what cooking is. If you 
don't handle your ingredients properly. You know, salt, fat, acid, heat. Great book teaching you exactly this. But but she, the way that she gets about goes goes about it as prose um, and as description. It, it, it just there's no one else that I've encountered in life or in, in just language who would describe the act of making a meal or a dish in these terms. Um, I just, I would wager that, that, that even Emily Dickinson would actually just say tablespoon of this, of that, just give you, you know, give a recipe because the, it, it is that, yeah, or like that has a function. Say like, oh, well, um, you know, I tried this, but it didn't work out. So you'll probably want to do it that way. I'm just thinking like, I mean, we all write emails to our friends about food, presumably. Like, how do we talk about right. recipes with our friends? I think that that partly it's that feeling of enjoyment in how she describes the food. Yeah. But it feels like she's standing beside her friend talking about what they're doing together, as opposed to, like, giving instructions that the friend is supposed to follow. Yeah. It's like a sensory kind of engagement with each step. And then also, I... I said this before, but I'm going to say it on the record. The fact that she specifies covered in plastic. I didn't know what date the letter was when I first read it. And I was like, oh, you're supposed to cover in plastic, not old tin foil." And I was like, that was a moment in the 80s and early 90s. <laughs> everything was more sanitary. Not your mother's tin foil. <laughs> well, totally. But now it's like, no, it's our mother's plastic stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, BPA. Keep the BPA away from the baby, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Have you all read Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I just read it recently. And I think it's the first letter where he's like telling this young poet, like how to write a poem. And he says, oh, what you have to do is describe your sorrows and desires and also put some capital T things from your life and like some images from your dreams. End. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, that's the, you just explained the whole thing. Like, that's how you write a poem. It's so amazing. Jig is up, poet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I thought of that when you said thinginess and she's totally doing that. You know, she like when she writes a poem, it's her sorrows and desires and then some things from in the garden or the bedroom or what have you. Um, yeah, that make it feel that make it feel immediate. Like combined with the address to the reader, there's an immediacy that like you know, kind of a, a veneer of of materials that are understandable. Yeah. Um, but you're looking right through them because she's also so good at communicating the underneath of that material. Yeah. Uh it's wild. It's just like the X-ray vision that she allows you to have, um, that she kind of empowers you to have. That is, is, you know, poem by poem. I just, I'm like, how did she do that? Because I don't know anything about flowers. I don't, you know, I, I googled I, some of them because I wanted I to, to know them what them they look yeah. like. Yeah, I have to look <laughs> them up in the way that, like, I when I, you know, with like Meadowlands or or, or mm-hmm. other volumes, I have to remind myself of the. Even as someone who loves poetry, it's it's, just, it's wild that I haven't memorized every myth by now because, man, do poets love myth. But <laughs> I I have to look up these you know these things in a way that to really understand what she's doing. And I'm looking up. I'm like, okay, white lilies, 
what's their personality? Like they're animals, like, like they don't have, you know, they're, they're flowers. Um, I and she just makes animal. me, that was good. She makes me want to think of them as, as conscious forms that, that have tastes and displeasures. Yeah. 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 And something like a soul, you know, to the yeah. extent, to the, to the extent that we have something like a soul. Yeah. I don't know that void. She's gotten a lot out of it. (laughs) All right. That's all for Louise Glick episode. Thank you to Cameron and Elisa. And as always, thank you to Adam Bear for our music and to the people at Literary Hub for hosting us. We love hearing from listeners, so please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and write to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and goodbye till next week.